All right. If you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to continue in our study. Originally, I planned on finishing chapter 12 today, and as I began to study it, I realized I wouldn't be able to do that with the time that we have left, being a communion week and all of that. And so I've broken it up a bit, and actually it ends up being a really good thing, because by breaking it up, this is nothing but an awesome, wonderful perspective of your future. Um, and I, I love this. Um, I, I've mentioned to you that Hebrews is a long, chapter 12 is a long buildup to a final warning, but we're not going to get to that warning today. It kind of comes into full picture next, uh, next well, not next week, but the week after. Um, and all of Hebrews 12 has pictured the Christian life as a race of, of, of faith, and we've been looking at that for the last few weeks. And we've been exhorted as, as Christians living the Christian life, running the Christian race of faith, to, to, to do certain things, to leave aside the extra baggage, to not carry things through our life that are unnecessary because we're, we're not taking them into the, the eternal state, to um, encourage us to, to view difficulties and trials and, and sufferings in this life differently, to look at those things as really God's discipline, that he uses all these circumstances in our lives to train us and to, to correct us, but also to cultivate us, to educate us, and to push us toward maturity. We've been challenged to run the race of faith, considering all of those running with us, thinking about those who are weak uh, among us, who might need to be strengthened and encouraged. And we've also been encouraged to to look for those maybe in the church who are um, maybe missing out completely on God's grace. The term last week was falling short of God's grace. And so really before he gets to the final warning itself, the the weak Christians, those Christians who were considering turning back, going back to Judaism in this church, and also those on the verge of accepting him, those that are just right there, they're just short of God's grace, those are given a visual picture of this race. And it is a wonderful picture. We're given the starting line and the finish line here, (coughs) which is a good reminder that you're running to a destination, right? You're not just running for the sake of running. We're going somewhere in this Christian life. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. I think it's one of the most wonderful uh, passages in all of Scripture because it contrasts our destination, where we're going to, with um, where we're coming from. And the way they're pictured are by two mountains. it's, It's looking at two mountains. One is Mount Sinai, and one is Mount Zion. And we're gonna look at those today. But Mount Sinai, we're coming in essence, coming from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is God's law, represents that. And we're going to Mount Zion, and it represents God's grace. Two mountains that symbolize different things. Now, one of those can save you. One cannot. Mount Zion, God's grace can save you. Mount Sinai, with his law, cannot save. We're not saved by works. So the author... If you think back to last week, he was addressing, the the last thing he was addressing was that particular group of people, those who were maybe falling short of God's grace. They haven't accepted God's free gift of grace. And so in an effort to encourage them forward to to God's grace, all of us, all of us are pictured as, as coming to this finish line, as if we've already reached it. You've come to Mount Zion. This is an incredible section of scripture. So coming to Zion, this is what I've titled it today. We're going to look at the passage, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. Let me read it. 
For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity to hear from you, and we pray that your spirit would be with us, that you guide us into truth, Lord, that you help us to see with spiritual eyes the beautiful uh, rich spiritual blessings that are in store for your your children, Lord. We pray that your people would be greatly encouraged by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, as I said, so to, to encourage readers on toward grace, the writer has given this vivid picture here, this uh, picture of these two mountains. And the first thing we're looking at is where we're coming from. We're coming from Sinai's law. Now, in particular, the Jewish audience really would have understood this, right? The, uh, Mount Sinai and even Mount uh, Zion. But we want to see what they're talking about here today. Nowhere in this passage is Mount Sinai mentioned, is it? You didn't see Mount Sinai. But when you read through this and you see the descriptions that are taking place here, it's crystal clear what he is talking about. And so I want to take you there, but in a second, it's um, just look back at verses 18 to 19. It's set just to get these back in our minds. He's, he's speaking about some mountain. He says, you've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. That sounds like a creepy, dark mountain to go to. What is this about? Well, the writer is recalling a very specific event in Israel's history. It's found in Exodus 19. So keep your finger in Hebrews because we're going to come back to that, but I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. The children of Israel have been freed from Egyptian slavery by Moses. Moses has led them through um, the, uh, actually to the edge of the Red Sea. If you remember, the, the Egyptian army is pursuing them Moses parts the sea by the power of God. They cross through the sea, and then the waters come back and crush the Egyptians. And so the Israelites are now in the wilderness, and God has begun to take them through the wilderness. He takes them to the wilderness of Sinai, and he, he causes them to camp at the base of a mountain. That mountain is called Mount Sinai. And there he tells Moses to go tell the people to consecrate themselves, that is sort of to set themselves apart, prepare themselves ritually by ritually cleansing themselves. They're to abstain from any marital relationships. And uh, they're to do these things because God is going to visit them. Now, it's, it's pretty clear God's been with them this far anyway, right? There's a pillar of cloud. There's a pillar of fire that's been leading them. But God is coming. 
And he says, so tell the people to get ready. And that is the picture we've come to. They're at the base of the mountain. God comes to this mountain. Take a look at Exodus 19. And this is when he comes. It's in verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of a trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who heard, so who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, it became louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. So this is quite a vivid picture, isn't it? They've been actually at this point three months traveling. They come to this mountain, and now God's going to come, and this is what they see. This is a vivid description. There's smoke, there's fire, thunder, lightning. The, the, the ground is quaking. There's this mysterious sound of a trumpet going on, and it's getting louder and louder, and even a voice. All that is happening around this mountain. That's a frightening scene. So frightening that the people, they didn't want God to talk to them. Moses brought them out. Hey, God wants to meet with you. And once they saw that, they said, well, we don't want to meet with him. <laughs> Could you imagine? That's God? God was communicating something there. But I want you to see their response. Just look ahead to chapter 20 of Exodus. Look at verses 18 to 19. After they saw all this, this is their response. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. If that's God and he's going to talk with us, we're dead meat. That's what they're saying. It's better off if we have a mediator. If Moses instead, how about you speak to us? See, God is communicating something there. He's a God to be feared. Fear was being uh, communicated clearly. But also something, something else. If you look back to Hebrews 12, in fact, I'll put it up on the screen because I want you to stay in Exodus 12, 19. You can see this is what the author was referring to. He says, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. All that sound, uh, this trumpet blaring and the, the words coming out, that was enough to scare them. And so that's when they said, we don't want God talking to us. Moses, instead, you, you speak to us. Now, prior to the Lord coming to the mountain, he'd given them some very strict commands concerning the mountain. He wanted them to be sure that they did not actually touch the mountain. Go back to uh, Exodus 19 and look at verses, uh, verse 12 and 13. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So here we go. When they heard the sound of a trumpet, they were to come near the mountain. But they were not to touch the mountain and not even the base of the mountain. An animal could not wander and touch the mountain. 
Now, understandably, then, they were too fearful to approach the mountain. Well, if, if I'm going to die, if I, go to, I don't want to go anywhere near the mountain. But Moses is saying, come out, I want you to meet God. So they're very fearful about this. And in Hebrews 12, verse 20, we, we read this, for they could not endure what was commanded. And then they're repeating what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. So you can see the author of Hebrews is very much quoting Exodus 19. Here's what's going to happen. You touch the mountain, you're going to be stoned or a shot. So that's the commandment to the people, the leaders. If anyone touches that, they're to die. But also if anyone to touch that, God would break out against them. So this is a terrifying scene. So terrifying, even Moses is terrified. The author of Hebrews, again, in verse 21, he said, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and terrified. So here you have, he's trembling. Moses is very afraid. Now, when you read the Exodus account, as we did, it emphasizes that the people were afraid. They're the ones that trembled. But, But the author of Hebrews tells us that Moses was afraid and trembling. When, when was that happening? Well, if you look back to verse 19 of uh, Exodus 19, I think it's right in here. And a lot of commentators believe the same. It says, when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him. We're not told what Moses said, but I think the author of Hebrews got it. Moses said, God, I am really afraid right now. I'm exceedingly afraid. In fact, I'm trembling. He was even terrified to be in the presence of God. Now, what what is being communicated here? This is such a vivid scene. Why is the author bringing all of this up? Well, it has to do with one of the main themes that we've covered in the last half of this book, access to God. That's been a major theme, hasn't it? What God has communicated here is that he was unapproachable by sinful men. When they saw God, Smoke, fire, lightning, voice. I mean, they all, that was enough for them to go, I can't come into this. He can't talk to me. Because they recognized there was a greater power than them. God is holy. God is perfect. And he was saying, man cannot even come near me. In fact, you better set a boundary around or they'll die. In Hebrews 12, 18, I want you to notice this. It said this, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness. It says, you haven't come to the mountain that may be touched. Now, why does he say that? It may be touched. Because it could be. You could touch it. It was a physical, visible mountain. You could see it. You could touch it to your own peril. You were, they were commanded not to touch it. That's why he says it may be touched. What he is saying here is that that mountain was a physical, visible mountain in Israel's history. And God descended upon that mountain. And at that mountain, it was there. They could touch it, but they were commanded not to touch it. And, but, but the reason why is that there was no access to God. In fact, only Moses and Aaron go up initially in the presence of God. Later, he's able to take, take some elders and whatnot, but the people were meant to stay away. In fact, so concerned for the people is God that he actually commands Moses to go back down and warn them again in case you have some curious onlookers going, oh, that is pretty cool. I, I'm going to go get a closer look. He's very concerned. So God is not doing that luring people. Come on, come check it out. I want to kill you. He's actually concerned that some dull-witted person will actually think they could come into the presence of God. And so he calls Moses back up. Look at chapter 19 again. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, I love this. Moses just gets up. I don't know how high it is, okay, but he just gets up. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, 
go back down and warn the people. <laughs> you know, like, like, I don't know, how, how old is Moses at this point, right? He gets all the way to the top of the mountain, and God says, all right, go back down. Oh, God, couldn't you send a carrier pigeon or something to tell me that? But he gets up there, and he says, I want you to go back down. Look at it says, warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the the people cannot come up to the mountain, Sinai. You've warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And then the Lord said to him, away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron, with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So if, if they were to even allow people to come up the mountain, they didn't shoot them with an arrow, they didn't stone them, God would break out against them. He said, listen, I'm very serious about this. Don't let anyone come up here. And now later on, Moses is alone up there with God. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And you remember what happens after that. The people began to wonder what he's doing up there, and they, they decide to build themselves a calf. They want a tangible God. They want a God they can touch and feel and see. Right? That's a God that I can't approach. Let me make a God I can and so they give him the gold, and they make me a God. Make me a God that I can approach, that I feel good approaching. Do you see the difference? But God says, you may not approach me. Now, what was God doing on that mountain with Moses? Giving him the law, the Ten Commandments. And I was going to mention them, and then Rob, Rob mentioned the same thing. The Ten Commandments, the law, that established the old co- covenant. Everything was based upon obedience to the law. And that's the whole point the author's trying to make. He says, you have not come today, you have not come to that mountain, that mountain that may be touched, that visible, physical mountain. God was unaccessible to normal man. And on that mountain, God gave the law. And that law condemned men. No one has been able to get past the Ten Commandments. Everyone has broken those commands. We're not perfect, in other words. And this is where the Jews... Um, whom the writer is addressing, they've, they've come from. They have had, in Judaism, a lifetime of this, a lifetime of adhering to ceremonial cleansing and sacrifices and feasts, and none of those things ever gave them access to God. None of those things ever completely atoned for their sins. They were always back again to sacrifice another animal. No one could go into the presence of God, only the high priest, and only one day a year. He says, you're not running to that mountain. Praise God. Where, where God there said, you got to be perfect to approach me. No, instead, we're running to Mount Zion. And in fact, he says, we've already come to it. Now, before I get there, I wanted to show you some pictures. And um, Reese said he helped me out. Turn off the lights in the very, very back because um, and, and, these are hard to see. And Tate, if you can hit those two lights right there and turn off the stage lights. These are pictures of the northern lights that I did not find on the Internet. Ethan and Jemila took pictures of the northern lights. The, they, were, they said there's an app that helps you to track them because they just kind of go anywhere. And they went outside and was literally above their house. And so we have pictures right from Alaska. Both. Hit, hit it. Just push it. That's it. All right. So the, the first few are just pictures here. Isn't that crazy? Just like a whole, like, spectrum of colors up there. He said it looks like, um, like sparkling fragments of glass and, and crystal moving around. Now, this one should be a video.
hard to see, I know, but there's just, they're trying to give you an idea that it kind of spreads out. <laughs> Pretty incredible. Excellent. Thanks, Tim. You can turn those back on. I wanted to show those because um, uh, they, they said there, had, there was just nothing, nothing like that. They, they stood out there, and they looked at this magnificent display, um, uh, uh, this, this beauty and this radiance, and it transported themselves somewhere else, right? Instantly, you begin to think, oh, God, this is, this is God. This is incredible. When we see these things that maybe not everyone gets to see every day, huh? There's a little glimpse there of, of something. It's, it's a picture. For them, it was a picture of, of heaven. Haley, you shared a little bit of that today. Like the, the, the music and the orchestra for you was a picture of heaven for worship. This is what the author is doing for us today. He's giving us a picture of heaven, and he's using Mount Zion. Now, go back to Hebrews, if you would, Hebrews chapter 12. We're up to verse 22 now. Okay? We covered all the stuff that he's talking about with the old mountain. But verse 22, we'll go bit by bit through this. 22 says this, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now stop right there because he doesn't say you're coming to it. He says, you have come. You have come to Mount Zion. Now I know that I mentioned this before, but this is another very, very crystal clear example of the already and the not yet of the promises of God that come to believers. You have come to Mount Zion. Now, now who here go, yeah, I'm on Mount Zion. Some of you are like, I don't even know what Mount Zion is. We'll talk about that in a moment. You have come. But also, there is a fulfillment of this in the future that is, 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 is more full. We don't have the fullness of that. That's not yet ours. It's already here. You've come to it, but not quite yet. Now, what is meant by Mount Zion? Now, Mount Zion, that's a literal mountain as well. Historically, it was a mountain that, well, was in Jerusalem before Jerusalem was Jerusalem today, David had to conquer it. The Jebusites had that. And he conquered the Jebusites, and he kind of established his capital there. But the first thing he did was to move the Ark of the Covenant up, up on top to Mount Zion. Now, eventually, that got incorporated into Jerusalem. Mount Zion then became synonymous with Jerusalem. That's the place, historically, and there's a literal place. Now, two of the Psalms that this author in Hebrews has quoted um, both connect the Savior to Mount Zion. And I want to show you those. Back in, in chapter 1, verse 5 and 5, 5, both two times, Psalm 2, 7 was quoted. And we'll put it on the screen here. This is what was quoted. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Do you remember that verse? That's about Jesus Christ. Now, that was verse 7. Look at the next slide, and verse 6 is right before it. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. There it is. And then I will declare the, the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. So where is that Lord sitting? On the holy hill of Zion. Another verse was quoted. It was Psalm 110, verse 2. That was way back in chapter 1 as well. Uh, but uh, or actually, it was, it was verse 1, sorry. Psalm 110, verse 1, and here it is, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus spoke about that scripture saying, that's about me. Do you remember that? So he is the one that's going to make his enemies sit beneath him. Now, that's verse 1. Take a look at it with verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength 
out of Zion. Where is he going to sit to put his enemies under his footstool? Well, that strength is coming out of Zion. In the Old Testament, Zion is referred to as God's holy mountain. God had chosen a place geographically in earth to say, I am going to dwell there. But at the same time, it has a spiritual future connotation. Here's Psalm 132, verses 13 to 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever, and here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Why why did God take that? He wanted it. He, He desired it. So Zion is a literal, physical mountain because, well, Christ is going to reign there in the millennial kingdom. But this reference also takes us beyond that physical mountain to the spiritual. We've come to the dwelling place of God. That's what he's saying. The place of grace. And guess what? You can approach him. You can come to him. Now, again, it's not a physical place that we can touch like Mount Sinai. He's not saying that today. Coming to Mount Zion, then, it's synonymous with becoming a Christian. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have come to Mount Zion because all of these things are yours. You have access to God, you have grace, but you also have these great promises that come to you because you have access to our great God through our great high priest, Jesus. And so today we're going to look at this. There are seven blessings that come to us with this idea of coming to Zion, seven blessings of Zion. And the first, we're told, is to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city, verse 22 said, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what we've come to. That's the city that Abraham looked for back in chapter 11, verse verse 10. Abraham, remember, he was always a a nomad, always traveling through the land, never been able to really settle down and and own the promised land for himself. And the author of Hebrews said that's because he looked for another city. It was Hebrews 11.10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He's looking for a heavenly city, a city that does not exist here on earth. We have come, he says, to that city. How have we come to that city? It's by our virtue of being united with Christ. I told you guys before, because we're united with Christ and Christ is seated above, we're seated with him. So that's actually another one of those alreadies. That is already true, but also not yet. We already are seated with him because, well, scripture tells us that. Ephesians 2, 6, that God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You can tell somebody today that you sit in heaven. They might think you're a little crazy, but that's the truth of the matter. You are seated in the heavenly places, and therefore you have come to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Because we sit there with Christ, we're considered citizens of that city. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have citizenship there, but we remain here. What is our role here? Well, Paul talks about it. We're ambassadors of Christ, okay? An ambassador goes out to another, right, on behalf of one. So we are here on behalf of Christ. We're ambassadors for him. Why? Because we're coming from another place. You're seated in heaven. Your citizenship is there. You're an ambassador here. You don't live here. People are like, well, I do. Someone's going to pay my mortgage. All right, but you do, but you don't. You're a citizen of heaven, and you're an ambassador here. That's the role. 
This is the city that we wait for. And a sneak preview of Hebrews 13, 14 tells us that we wait for the city. Look at it. Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. You don't have one here, but you're seeking the one that's going to come. And it is described for us in great detail in Revelation 21, isn't it? We don't have time really to go through that today. We have listened to a recording of that, didn't we, of Revelation 21. But when you read through Revelation 21, it speaks about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city coming down out of heaven, and it's all described for us. It's, it's the opposite of what we just read about the mountain. Remember the mountain? Darkness, smoke, thunder, lightning, everything was a tempest. But it's, it's the opposite. It's bright. It's, it's light. It's holy. And it's inviting. It's colorful. And God is there. And God wants us to be there. It's a completely contrasted picture. That heavenly city, go read Revelation 21 today. Go read it and go, that's right, I'm a citizen there. And the author is saying you have already come to the heavenly city. So if you don't believe that there's a heavenly city, you have a problem with the author of Hebrews as well. Because he says there is and you've come to it. It's the heavenly city and it has foundations, it has gates that are made of pearls, and it's an incredible place. And we will be there one day. You have come to this place. But we've also, go back to Hebrews 12, come to uh, another thing. And it says this, we've come to, verse 22, to an innumerable company of angels. To an innumerable company of angels. Now, just to point something out, the phrase at the beginning of verse 23 that says, to the general assembly. Um, general assembly means festal gathering. It's, it's likely a reference to the angels and not to what's coming after that, which is the church, because you can translate that you have come to an innumerable company of angels in festal gathering. Angels were present at Mount Sinai on that smoky, dark mountain. When God brought the law, angels were there. Now, the people didn't see them, but Scripture tells us they were there. In Deuteronomy 33, 2, and he said, The Lord came from Sinai, there's that mountain, and dawned on them from Seir, he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints. And from his right hand came a fiery law for them. So when he was given out that law, he brought ten thousand angels uh, with him. Our society um, has been fascinated with those kind of things, supernatural things, angels, both fallen and not. All right. He's, it, when I was in high, high school, there were just, or even actually beyond that, there were many angel television programs on all the time. There were books and movies, and people were just obsessed with, with angels. We had a friend that always, every time we you know, said goodbye, oh, angels, angel kisses on your pillow or something like that. What was it? Can't, kisses on your pillow. I was like, okay. <laughs> just don't leave too much slobber, but all right. But listen, what does the Bible say about angels? They are created beings, and they're created to worship God. They'll be worshiping God. And also, they serve the redeemed. They serve us as ministering spirits. Remember the opening argument of this whole letter, Jesus is better, and, and the author's taken him through, oh, he's better. All the, the first one was Jesus is better than the angels, because in the Jewish mind, angels were there. But it's nothing better. It's angels and then God. And so Jesus is better than angels, which is a huge point, isn't it, for those those cults that make Jesus lower than angels. They say that he is just a, he's the chief prince among angels. And yet Daniel chapter 10 says that Michael is one of the chief princes, which already is a problem, right? If there's more than one. <laughs> but he's not a chief prince. 
He is higher than the angels because he's not a created being. He's God. But, but when it talked about that and that argument, Hebrews 1.14 said this about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They come and minister to you and to I. And I don't know, do you ever think about angels? That angels are in this room as we worship God, as, as we're in the word of God? They're here ministering to your heart even right now? That's not wacky, that's truth. And guess what? Most of the world that's fascinated about these things are going to meet angels, but it won't be in the context of worship. It will be in the context of judgment. In Daniel chapter 7, there's this vivid picture given of this judgment. In verse 9, it says this, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. That's God. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Those ten thousands, it's myriads, myriads of angels that were before him. But notice the picture of God again. Here's the fire, right? Here's the burning fire, the flame. This is the God of judgment. The courts are opened here. This is, this is judgment, and this is the Revelation 20. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to read uh, really briefly here, but this is the great white throne judgment. In Revelation 20, verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is a judgment upon sinners. This is where the law gets you. This is what it gets you to, judgment. There is no salvation in the law. We haven't come to Mount Sinai and the law will come to Zion. But at this place, they'll be judged by works. But those that place their faith in Christ, they're judged by his finished work on the cross at Calvary. And so our experience, our experience with the innumerable company of angels will not be in the context of judgment. Praise the Lord. It'll be in the context of worship. We'll join them in worshiping the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 5, it says, I looked and, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Do you stop enough to envision that? The author is telling you, you are there. You've come to the heavenly city. You've come to this company of angels. You're there in their midst, worshiping. And guess what? You will really be there in the future. That's not just a pie in the sky. Just imagine it and, and, and picture what that would be like. You should do that. But that will happen. You ever think about that? You're going to be worshiping next to angels. Most of the world just wonders what angels are like. We'll be 
with angels all the time. Incredible. That's your future. We've also come, going back to Hebrews 12, to, it says this, the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. That's in verse 23. This is the church, the whole church, the universal church, the whole body of Christ. We have a body of Christ here, a church, a local church. But the universal church are are, are the believers all over the world. That's the universal church. And all New Testament believers are part of the church. Now, the church, it says, we've come to that. You've come to the church who are the firstborn and registered in heaven. Let's look at those two things. The firstborn, the firstborn are those who receive the inheritance. In the Old Testament, you're born first, you get all the goods, okay? That's the firstborn. The inheritance of heaven is ours because we are firstborn by virtue of being co-heirs with Christ. We're children of God. We're adopted into his family, picturing it that way. And now we're co-heirs of Christ, according to Romans 8, 17. It says, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's why, why Jesus says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. It's as, it's as if we're in the same family. We get the inheritance. That is the church. We also are registered in heaven. That's an amazing thing to think about. There's a registry up there in heaven with your name on it. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the 70 and they went and did miracles? Demons responded in their name. They were subject to them and they came back amazed. And they told Jesus, oh, that's amazing. Demons are subject to us. But Jesus said this. Don't be amazed by that. In Luke 10, 20, he says, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, that must have been a shocker. Wait a minute. (laughs) They're written in heaven. Where are they written? What are they written on? Well, our names are registered in a book which we just read about in Revelation 20, that's called the Lamb's Book of Life, or just simply the Book of Life. And eight times in Scripture, Scripture makes reference to this book in reference to those who are allowed to enter the heavenly city. Revelation 21 talks about that. Only those names written in the book are allowed to come into the heavenly city. In Revelation 21, 27 says, There shall by no means enter it, Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of of life. So only those in the book will enter into the city, and that is going to be the church. Can you picture the universal church? People you've never met, brothers and sisters of Christ from all over the world, from all different times of all over the world, assembled together in the presence of God, singing praises to Him. I get to go leaving tomorrow for the States, and I'm going to the Shepherds Conference, which um, uh, is at John MacArthur's church. They do this giant pastors conference. I, I went there one year, many, many years ago, and we got a hotel room. And the young girl at the desk, I think I told you this before, we said, hey, we're here. And she says, you, you, what are you guys here for? We're here. The, it's the Shepherds Conference. And she was so confused by that. She looked around the room at all these men. She says, you're, you're all shepherds? <laughs> and we're all in you know, suits and ties and stuff. I said, Yeah. It's, it's pastors. She was, oh, okay. Like, oh, I didn't realize. Okay, pastors conference. So that's what it means. It's a pastors conference. And there will be thousands of pastors in a giant room worshiping God. I'm going to take my phone out and record it like I did at the men's uh, conference because it, for me, that's a picture of heaven. The universal church, we come to the church. He says, you have that. You have that. You're going to come and be together forever and we'll be worshiping God. Mm, incredible. 
What else do we have? Well, we also come to God, the judge of all. We get God. We get to come into his presence. That's what he's telling us. And in Revelation 21, again, when that heavenly city comes down, God tells us that he's going to be there. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God, God will be there. That, that veil that separated man from God in uh, the temple and in the, the tabernacle, that veil was torn in two when Jesus died on that cross. And so now we all have access to God. Incredible. Anyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can come to God, the judge of all, it says. Now, why is he referred to here as the judge when he's speaking about our access to God? Why not father? Doesn't that sound more appropriate? He says the judge. Because this whole chapter is a warning. I wanted to remind you of that. And the author is reminding those that are still undecided about God, undecided about grace, that God is, after all, the judge of all. He's judge. And you can enter into his presence either with thanksgiving, like we will, or with dread. Judgment's coming. To come to God at Mount Sinai meant death. To come to God at Mount Zion, it means life and it means joy forevermore. God is what we get. He's our portion forever. According to Psalm 73, I love how he says it in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You get God. But there's more that we come to. And in verse 23, it says, we've also come to the spirits of just men made perfect. We've come to spirits of men. Who are these people? Well, these are the people who have gone before us. We have a solidarity with the likes of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. All these guys that we looked at in the the hall of faith, they had to wait a long time for perfection. That perfection for us is experienced at the the moment that we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You remember the end of the the Heroes of the Faith, chapter, chapter 11? Verse 40 said this, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The they is the Old Testament saints. They're not made perfect apart from us, New Testament saints. But see, now they are. Now they are perfected. And we're told that we're going to be united with them. We're going to come to the spirits of just men who have been made perfect. Think about all the Old Testament characters we read about, but think about others. Is there anybody that you really like to to talk to? Any any questions you have for some people? Don't you really want to know how to pronounce Job? I mean, is it Job? Have we had it wrong? Who would you want to talk with? I think about it. They are there. Do you see what the author's doing? He's like, you're going to come. He just talked. He took, he took a whole chapter, chapter 11, to talk about these amazing saints. He says, yeah, you've come to them. You're going to be with Abraham. You're going to be with Noah. How is that? Building a boat. What kind of things did people say to you? I mean, you will get to talk with these men. They're made perfect. They'll be in your presence. The author is trying to get you up there. You're running this race. It's a slog. But he says, look where you're going. Look where you're going. You're going to the heavenly city and God is there and the church is there and the saints of all history are there. It's incredible. And guess who else is there? The one main person I would like to talk to, Jesus is there. We've come to Jesus, the mediator 
of the new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, and that brought uh, no access to God. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, which guarantees us access and all of these blessings that we're talking about as well. Hebrews 9.15 said this, And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Oh, can you imagine it, people? Just come to Jesus. Jesus is there, sitting at his feet, being able to touch him, being able to worship him. The ultimate unbelievable truth of our meeting Jesus is that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's one final blessing, and it is this. In verse 24, it says, we've come to forgiveness. But it's worded this way. We've come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Why is the blood of sprinkling the last one mentioned? It seems like like you would climax with Jesus, right? But Jesus was there, and then we're told, oh, but you've also come to the blood of sprinkling. Well, we just recognized it today. We have come to Jesus, yes, but he will always ever be for us the lamb that was slain for us. He will bear the marks for us to remind what it cost for us to be in his presence. And we're reminded that that blood purchased my redemption. I am now in his presence because of the blood, the blood that was sprinkled. And it's a better, better uh, payment of blood than, than that of Abel. It's the blood of Jesus. And that's what grants us forgiveness. In Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. What about that reference to Abel then? Why is he speaking about Abel? Remember back in chapter 11, verse 4, I'll put it up here for you. This is what he said about him. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. Abel made a sacrifice to God. It was acceptable to God because it was offered in faith, but it had no atoning power. He didn't have forgiveness from that. It didn't provide full forgiveness, and nor did it provide access to God. But Jesus, not only is Jesus better, his blood is better. His sacrifice was better because his blood brought us into that future eternity that is not only future, but you have right now. He says, you've come to Mount Zion. Colossians 1.19, to close with this verse, says this, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We couldn't have access to God if we didn't have peace with God. How do we have peace with God? Through the blood of his cross. Aren't you glad that we don't live under the shadow of Mount Sinai anymore? Aren't you glad that we're not looking up at a terrible, terrifying God on a mountain there, but instead God has offered his grace to us? And he says, come to this mountain. Come to this one. Don't go to that mountain. This is the mountain I have for you. To get rid of the mountain, he says, come to grace. If you want God, then you have got to take his grace. Grace is what he offers you. But for our believers today, he says, you've come to the heavenly city. You've come there. You've come to a company of angels who'll be in their presence, to the whole church gathered together, to God, to all the saints of all history, to Jesus himself, and you're there because of the forgiveness granted to you by the blood of Jesus. Are you encouraged today? Forget what's happening in this world. That's your future. You are coming to Zion, and you have come to Zion. Amen. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this encouraging word. 
that you give us in this wonderful passage, Lord, and we thank you that Mount Zion is real, historically real, but also real for us spiritually, that we really will be in your presence where you dwell, the heavenly city, God, and us as your people, Jesus in our presence, the whole church of all history being there. That's our future. For those who are feeling weak and tired and alone and um, confused, and all, all those things vanish when we look at our eternity, when we look at our future, when we look where we're going. Yes, the race is hard. The Christian life is hard. But what God wants us to see today is where we're going. We are coming to Zion, baby, and we have come. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.